You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Do you know if you're a visitor here or if you're not a Christian, you come here regularly and um, you sang those words, sin and death have been destroyed. I just want you to just take a, a second and think, is that true? Because if that's true, that is the most astonishing and wonderful thing. In a week in which uh, we buried a good friend, our elder, Donald, and um, where we're also very conscious of the impact of sin, to think that these enemies have been destroyed by Christ's cross is wonderful. And we're going to go to Isaiah 46. We're looking through Isaiah, and uh, we've been looking from Isaiah 40, and if you want to catch up, you can go back, you can go to our website, and you can uh, catch up with the sermons there. But this passage that we look at this morning, it's one of those passages that's not an immediate, obvious, standout passage, like Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 40, or Isaiah 66. And uh, as we read it, and, and look at it, you may think, well, you know, what does this have to do with me? But I'm going to tell you that we're going to look at, you know, bring up issues like ISIS and universities and idolatry and different religions and Satanism and tiredness and heresy and birth and youth and old age and the motherhood of God and our hearts and becoming a Christian and beauty and uh, Jesus. And we're going to do all that in time for you to get lunch. So let's get going. Um, this part of Isaiah does carry a lot of repetition. Why do we repeat things? So that we remember them. And so the repetition here is very important. Chapter 46 is really uh, a repetition of one verse in chapter 45, verse 20, where it says this, uh, Gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nations, ignorant of those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. So we read from verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together. Unable to rescue the burden, they themselves go off into captivity. Israel had been oppressed by a nation... Uh, King Cyrus, Babylon, a, a nation who did not worship the God of the Bible, a nation who worshipped idols. And here, uh, Isaiah brings in the name of two of those idols. Bel, or Baal, was a title transferred from their old guard, Enel, to Babylon's patron deity, Marduk. So became Bel Marduk, the god of Babylon. He had a son, in legend anyway, called Nebo, um, who was the patron saint of Dundee University. Uh, you may not know this. Well, he was the patron saint of learning, wisdom, and the art of writing. And uh, their names, they're there. We know them in the Bible, actually. You know them, for example, the name that was given to Daniel, Belshazzar. Bel was there. Imagine Daniel, a righteous, godly, young Christian boy, and he's sent in exile, and he's given the name of a pagan god. And... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, Nebuchadnezzar. I always think that Nebo kind of sounds like um, a Disney cartoon or, or something, but this guy was more, more serious than that. 
And what he's referring to here, what Isaiah is referring to here, or what God is saying through Isaiah, is that he's referring to a festival. Every year at New Year, Nebo was carried from his own temple of Borsippa, which was about 10 miles southwest of Babylon, and carried with his father, Belmarduk, through the shrines, through the streets rather, to the great shrine of Escalia. It was the greatest religious event of the year. It was a fantastic procession. It made the Edinburgh New Year Festival just look mild in comparison. And Isaiah saw this and he rejoiced in this wonderful cultural spectacle and the diversity of human religion. No, that's not what he did. This is what he says. This is a burden. It is wearisome. And he talks about these gods bowing and stooping and they're being so heavy that uh, the exhausted animals carrying them stumble and fall and they lead to captivity. Nice story. What's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with you? Well, we live in a culture where it is sinful to say that one religion is better than another. I, I realized the extent of this the past couple of weeks when I was seriously involved in an argument with uh, people who said that if Christianity is going to be taught in schools, then so should Satanism. And they're putting Satanism on a par with Christianity. And these were intelligent people who say, well, it's only fair. All religions are essentially the same. And uh, the Bible says, what Isaiah is saying is, no way. No, that's not the way at all. These gods will not save you. In many parts of the world, there are still idols like this in Hinduism, for example. And we have to say, it's not being racist to say that the idols of Hinduism won't save anybody. There's a religion which is firmly opposed to idolatry. And that, of course, is Islam. And yet, in contrast with the God of the Bible... We also have to say, Mohammed won't save anybody. Satanism and paganism are making their way back as alternative religions. You, you think, this is insane. The world, for some of you are a bit older, the world you grew up, to think that in the 21st century we'd be seriously talking about Satanism. I received a phone call last week from a group of lawyers who are asking, how do we prevent Satanists from handing out books in our school?" You think, how do you, how do you, what are you talking about? This is insane. This is crazy. This was from um, the United States. Well, it's a, I think we simply say all the idols of this world and all the religions of this world, it's not that they're all different versions of a way to God. They are distractions away from the real God. And that is a completely countercultural message. But let me put it another way. Most of you are probably not thinking, oh, well, you may think, relief, I don't have any idols. I don't worship any God. Perhaps not in the traditional sense. But I think you do have idols because there are substitute idols. Money, sex, sport, self-narcissism. I think narcissism is the, uh, is the philosophy of our culture. I don't know if you've seen this. Narcissism, self-love. There's a, an incredible clip on, on YouTube of a bunch of very pretty girls at a baseball game. I don't know if any of you have seen this. And what are they doing? Are they watching the game? No. Now, okay, baseball's quite boring perhaps, so it's not 
Um, Are they looking for the boys? No. Are they talking to one another? Well, they are talking to one another. But the primary thing they're doing, as the baseball commentators, the commentary is going on, he's saying there's a home run or whatever. These girls, without exception, are all taking selfies on their smartphones. Numerous selfies. Why? You know, haven't you seen in a mirror what you look like? Are you going to be really that much different five minutes later? Why modern life is just so much about self-image and self-worth and self-this. Just the the self-centeredness of it all. Well, here's something that many of us need to learn. We don't save ourselves. These idols, they don't save. Let's go on. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They lift it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his trouble. These idols cost a lot of money. They don't come cheap. But Isaiah points out, very straightforward, you have to carry them. They can't even walk. You talk to them, but they don't talk to you. They do not answer. Now, when Isaiah is saying this, by the way, sometimes this is portrayed as though Isaiah is mocking them, as Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. I don't think he's doing that here. I think what's happening here is an immense sense of sorrow. I had a um, debate this week, as uh, Harry was praying about, with Scott McKenna, who's a minister. He's a minister who denies uh, that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He's a minister who basically denies the triune God uh, and, and denies the Bible as the word of God and all the basics of the Christian faith. And it was an interesting debate in lots of ways. I... My reaction to it is just simply, even when I was reading this, just this immense sorrow at his confused and hopeless beliefs and the idea that that is being taught to people. Because the kind of liberal Christianity, which, as uh, Niebuhr says this, brings us a God without wrath, who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross... That kind of Christianity doesn't save anybody. It's not Christianity. The kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism where, you know, there's a God and he loves you and be nice, that doesn't save anybody because it's lost as we were singing the wonder of the cross. And Isaiah is looking at these idols and it's it's an overwhelming sense of sorrow that people have been hoodwinked in this way. It's also a sense, a very bold prophecy, because the people in Isaiah's day, the Jewish people, would never see what was being promised here. What was promised was that these idols would be too burdensome and, and weigh people down. 
And it looked as though the very opposite was happening. It looked as though the God of the Israelites was tiny and being defeated. And the God of Cyrus and the Babylonians, the gods of Cyrus and the Babylonians were being triumphant. And you can imagine the procession going each new year as Cyrus conquers more and more countries. How the people would say, look at what our gods are doing. Except today, Christ is proclaimed in every country in the world. And Babylon is overrun by ISIS. And the temples of Bel and Nebo are being ransacked, what remains of them. Nobody worships them anymore. Millions worship the Christ who was to come from the Jewish people. Hundreds of millions. So, his first point, Isaiah's first point, and for all of us is this. Idols don't carry burdens. Idols bring burdens. And whether it's false religion or whether it's false hope, it's what you are living for. I want to say this to you, that if you are here and you are living for anything other than Jesus Christ, it ultimately is a burden to you. It doesn't help you. Alcohol becomes a burden. Even your family can become a burden. Your work can become a burden. Sport can become a burden. What is the difference then between the God of the Bible? And it's very simple. We go back to verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all of you who remain of the house of Israel, you who I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since their birth. The God of the Bible carries us. I carry you. I have upheld you since conception. It is the God who carries people who is truly God, not the gods who are carried by them. And I love the image here of conception to old age because it's actually counterintuitive to human experience. What it's saying is, in this congregation, from Ada to Brock and Drina. Now, I don't know Brock and Drina if you are the oldest in the congregation, but if you are, it's a badge of honor, not an insult. So uh, if anyone's older than them, fair enough. We'll have a wee competition. Um, you know, we lead table of who's the oldest because we're always going about who's the youngest. And it's funny, in our culture, being the oldest is considered an insult. I think it should be considered a badge of honor. So, but from wherever, whoever you are, whoever's going to admit to being the oldest, uh, it's saying that God carries us. Now, here's the difference. Because, humanly speaking, the baby in the womb is totally dependent, literally carried by their mother. The baby is born, literally carried, usually, by their mother. One of these wonderful baby holders that look as though they're being smothered, uh, but being carried by their mother. Walking to primary school, coming back from primary school the first time, picking your child up because they can't walk the whole distance, carrying them on your shoulder. Going to secondary school, where they're at that stage where they don't touch me because you'd be embarrassed in front of their friends. And then when they go off to university, they're complete, they don't, well, they are carried in a car or whatever uh, down to whatever you you, uh, try and uh, help them, you know, buy them some food, uh, tell them how to do their washing and things like that. But they're becoming more and more uh, independent. Maybe they grow up and get married or don't get married or whatever, but they live independently. And we, we, in a way, we stop carrying them, though not caring for them, except perhaps, I hope as Christian parents, we regularly carry them to the throne of grace. But what's being said here is a little bit different. It's saying, I am always carrying you. 
I'm always carrying you. Because as our children grow older, they become more like us. And indeed, they probably will end up carrying us, looking after us. But instead, the image that's given here is God is saying, from the moment of conception, if you like, right through to your old gray hairs, I am carrying you. As you grow older, you do not need to be carried less by God. That's why we rejoice in the fact that we change tiny baby, old gray hair, or no hair. We change so that, but God himself never ever changes. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. And that's why we can cast all our burdens on him because he cares for us. Now, here's an extraordinary thing. And I have to be careful with this. The metaphor that is used here of God and his people is that of a mother with her child. And some people have used this and want to argue about, can we pray to God as mother? The answer is no, because we're not here to make pseudo-feminist statements or political points. We address God in the way that the Bible tells us to, our Father in heaven. However, can we think of God as being like a mother? And the answer is yes. And let me cite what Calvin says on this. And I thought this was beautiful. This is a very expressive metaphor by which God compares himself to a mother who carries a child in her womb. If, says Calvin, it be objected that God is everywhere called a father and that this title is more appropriate to him, I reply that no figures of speech can describe God's extraordinary affection towards us. For it is infinite and various. So that, listen to this, if all that can be said or imagined about love were brought together into one, yet it would be surpassed by the greatness of the love of God. The intention of the prophet is to show that the Jews, if they they do not choose to forget their descent, cannot arrive at any other conclusion than that they were not begotten in vain and that God, who has manifested themselves to be both their father and mother will always assist them. Now, the point here is not to argue about gender definitions and and gender wars and to argue for gender fluidity. The big thing just now in culture amongst our younger people is wherever you are, you're going to be taught about gender fluidity, meaning you can choose to be whatever sex you want to be. It's absolute madness and chaos. But what is here is a picture and an image that is being used of God that is saying, think of that precious, precious love that exists between a mother and her child in the womb. And when that child is born and you begin to get a grasp of something of the love of God that is for you. And it's a beautiful and extraordinary and biblical picture. It goes on to say that God sustains and rescues, not your wooden gods, not your false idols, The Babylonian gods can't even rescue themselves, never mind their followers. There's no comparison to whom will you compare me or count me equal. That's the comparative religion. All religions are the same. Following Muhammad is the same as following Christ. Christianity is the same as Satanism. No, it's not. Galatians 4.8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
I do not look at the millions marching around Mecca or the millions going into the Ganges River to bathe themselves or the, in, in Nepal, the Buddhists all bowing down or the people who came to worship the Dalai Lama at the Caird Hall. I don't look at all of that and, and feel this sense of anger. What I feel is this immense sense of sorrow that people are losing themselves in idolatry and not seeing the glory and the beauty of the God of the whole universe. We don't worship a created God unable to save. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no other name given to men by which they can be saved. Now, let's go on. Verse 8. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a burden of prey. From a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said I will bring about. What I have planned I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted you who are far from righteous. I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Oh, God loves us. Isn't that wonderful? What a beautiful picture. There's God as the mother and looking after his children. How wonderful that is. God is going to speak kindly and graciously to me. Listen to me, you stubborn rebels. What kind of parent is that? A real one. A loving parent. He calls his people to repentance. The culture we live in says that if God loves his people, why doesn't he just use supportive, affirmative, comforting language? The answer is because God's love is is not weak and indulgent. It's robust. And he calls them to take to heart. Two things about that. One, he says, take this seriously. He's saying, listen up, get real. But two, he's actually saying, the problem is in your heart. Verse 12, you stubborn hearted ones. Literally, you powerful ones of heart. Now, I don't know every single person here. I don't know, even the ones I do know, I don't know what your problem is except this. I will guarantee you that the number one problem you have is in here. It's not anywhere else. It's the problem of your own heart. It's not even the sins that you commit externally. It's the problem of your heart because externally you can do all different kinds of things, good and bad, but it's what comes from within and God sees that and God knows. And so he tells them, you need to remember who I am. Verse nine, I know the beginning from the end. He's working to a coherent plan. Verse 10, my purpose will stand and I will do as I please. Because here's what happens. We, in our sinfulness, Look at our circumstances. Look at what has happened to us. Perhaps we're even conscious of our own sinfulness. And what do we do? We go, oh, God can't be in it. Or God can't help me. Or God doesn't want to help me. Or Lord, this is where you get people going, I don't believe because. And then they list all the bad things that have happened to them. And what God says is this. Listen, you stubborn hearted people. You need to know who I am. And who I am is this. I tell what's going to happen from the beginning to the end. I know that. 
Do you really think you can get in the way? Past, present, and future are all mine, he says. My um, head hurts when I think of the vastness of the universe. You know, how, how far is it to the nearest star? And then how many stars are in our galaxy and how many billions of galaxies there are? And, you know, it, it blows my mind. I cannot comprehend or grasp it. How much more so when I think of the vastness of God? It's almost, you just think, no, no. It's too, it's too big. It's too big. I can't get it. But that's exactly what God is doing. He's saying, here are your idols that you carry in this procession that you all celebrate, that you made out of gold that cost you a lot of money, that you talk to and he doesn't answer back to you, that it can't walk. And then here am I who created the whole lot, the whole universe with its billions of galaxies. And you think that I would lie or that I don't have the power? We think, does God really say, but does God really care? And God says, the whole point of this is God is saying, look, it's not your sinfulness that will triumph. It's not your circumstances that will triumph. It's God granting salvation. God has planned. God has spoken. God will act. What does that mean? How does that work? Well, notice what he says. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I'm not stubborn, you say. Stubbornly. You refuse to recognize it. You refuse to grasp it. But we are stubborn. We are thrown in sin. And the way that we know that is when we look at what righteousness actually is. Righteousness is just simply what is right. It is used in different ways in the Bible, but carries the idea of rectitude, of justice, of putting right what is wrong. Things that are unfair being sorted out. Righteousness is what God brings. And to the Jewish people, many of them believed that if only they obeyed God's law, they would be a righteous nation. Just as today, there are many religious people who think, if only I worship in this way, if only I do what this book commands, I will be righteous. And none of us is righteous. Just to go to, I would strongly recommend reading Romans which is all about what the real righteousness is. Romans 1.17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become, consciousness, become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, see that Old Testament law and prophets? It wasn't wrong. But its purpose was not to bring righteousness. It was to point to righteousness. How you get righteousness And how do you get it? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Isaiah is telling us that our deepest and greatest need is to be right with God. 
that God works in our life, that God is responsible for us, if you like, but we have rebelled against him and our stubborn hearts go against him. And we need to be made right with God. Now I know, see here's the problem. The problem is that some of you here are Christians and you go, I know that, I believe in Jesus, I'm fine, I'm forgiven. Why then do you have such a stubborn heart? Why do you persist in going against what God says? Why do you say one thing with your lips? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because your heart is stubborn and desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. And let me say that about my own heart as well. It's one of those incredible things that when people criticize you, you you almost take it on board and react because you can see it as being true. But part of it, part of you makes you think, oh my goodness, if only they really knew. And actually, let's go even further. If only you really knew how stubborn your heart was. But maybe some of you are in that position this morning that you're here and you're well aware of the stubbornness and the foolishness of your own heart. And you're like Paul saying, I want to do good, but the good that I want to do that I don't do and the evil that I do not want to do that I keep on doing. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver us? Not our own good works. Not the various religions all around the world. Not religious, Christless Christianity. The only person who can deliver us is Jesus Christ. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's setting up this wonderful contrast between the gods who cannot and the God who can. And the God who can does through Jesus Christ. That's it. God never comes to you and says, now if you do A, B, C, and D, you'll be okay. You may pass. You may get there. He comes to you and he simply says, you can't do it. There is none righteous, no, not one. But my son is righteous and I gave my son for you. And if you believe and trust in him, then you are righteous. Again, that's why we sang, may I never lose the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross is not, oh, isn't it amazing? There's Jesus up on the cross and look how serene he is. The wonder of the cross is not, isn't it incredible what someone will do to die and suffer for us? The wonder of the cross is that through the death of Jesus, we can be saved. Now, I go back to the debate I had with uh, Scott McKenna. You know what he said about that? That's barbaric. No, it's not. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because it means that you sitting here right now this morning, no matter what you have done, can come to God and be completely and totally forgiven with not a single word of that sin ever being remembered by God. It's gone. It's blotted out. It is extraordinarily beautiful. Now, every other religion in the world says, yes, you can be forgiven by God, but, and there's always a but, and there's always you've got to do this, and always you've got to do that. And Christianity is the religion of the desperate, because we come to him, we say, oh, Lord, I can't do this. And he goes, yeah, that's what I've been saying. You can't. But I have, and I've done so. And that's why he says, I, bringing my righteousness near, it's not far away. Now he's saying to the, to the Jewish people, he's saying, Cyrus, this pagan king, is going to be an instrument of my righteousness. But overall, what he's saying is, I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. It's God who brings salvation. You and I do not earn it. The word splendor is the word for beauty. 
John L. Mackay, in talking about this, and I'll finish with this, says this. Though at present the church of God is often defiled by sin and weakened by lack of love. Well, ain't that the truth? Christ is at work in it through his spirit. Really? Christ's at work in us, sinful people? Yeah. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 27. May we then forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead until we arrive at that glorious destination where our presence will be a monument to his presence and grace. Do you not think it's extraordinary that God has called us here? He's called you here. Do you really know what you are and who you are? And would you like all the people around you to know? I don't. I think it's wonderful that God has called us all to hear and he's called us to hear about his forgiveness and he's called us to follow him and he's called us to be prepared to be his bride. Some of you, I know this and I, I, it's, it's just so horrible to say, but some of you will go from this place with still stubborn hearts saying, yeah, nice service, but I can work it out myself. I don't need Jesus. Some will go from this place saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. Just now, let me get on my life. And I'm going, no, no. You can be a Christian, if you like, and be stubborn hearted. And God says, listen to me, you rebels. Listen to me. But those of us who get it, will be those of us who, as we bow in prayer just now, recognize how broken we are. And how much we need the forgiveness of God. And then just as the distance in the galaxies is so immense and awesome, we can't conceive it. So, the immenseness of the love of God far beyond a mother for her child, is so overwhelming that we'll just be sitting going, really? What? But that is our only hope. May the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that we are rebels at heart. Though outwardly we may conform, yet inwardly we are rebels. And we do confess that we're stubborn and sometimes, maybe often, far from righteousness, from what is right, from what pleases you, from what is good. And so we come to you and we ask just simply that you would work in our lives, that you would forgive us, that each of us would receive the forgiveness that you offer to us freely, that we would accept your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace 
the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.